This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, we're back on a Tuesday edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. Jonathan Taylor Thomas talks Major League Baseball, Cleveland Indians 2020 re- review edition, Cleveland Spiders maybe very soon. Who knows? Um, John Taylor is here as he always is up there in Brooklyn where all the all the sports writers, all of them live and reside. John, good afternoon. How are you? Doing great here in Midtown Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn, Manhattan. <laughs> Brooklyn, Manhattan. It's where all the kids go. People, people love it. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I love that. That uh, that cracked me up last week. Um, there is a lot of movement going on in Major League Baseball this week, John. We have the White Sox signing Liam Hendricks. We have Manfred being like, "Go fuck yourself." We're doing 162 games. Um, the Nationals signing Kyle Schwarber. Dodgers resigning Break Trian, like all kinds of kind nitty gritty. Where do you where do you want to start in our news items tip before we get into the Indians? I mean, Liam Hendricks is the most recent news, and it's definitely it, it definitely isn't. I mean, it, I say it has an impact on Cleveland. Cleveland's own machinations have more of an impact, but I mean, I, I think Hendricks is notable only because the AL Central now at this point really is a two team race uh, between Chicago and Minnesota, and I have to imagine that by signing Hendricks, the White Sox have the upper hand right now. Uh, if only because especially the Twins haven't done anything yet, aside from sign Hansel Robles, which we're not going to count as anything. So, you know, it's, it's interesting what the White Sox have done in that they, they've only made three, really three moves uh, in signing Hendricks and Adam Eaton and trading for Lance Lynn. But Lynn and, and Hendricks alone are just two really high-impact moves. Again, especially in a division where no one else is really doing anything right now. And there's also the idea, too, that if you're going to splurge on a reliever, you might as well do it for one of the best out there. And Hendricks is definitely that guy. Big strikeout numbers, big stuff. The main concern I have with Hendricks, beyond obviously the fact that you're going to be paying him $18 million a year for the next four years and in one capacity, or $13 million a year for the next three years, and then $15 million in his fourth year one way or the other, because uh, of that interesting contract he signed, where the fourth year is either a team option worth fifteen million or a buyout worth fifteen million in deferrals. I mean, beyond that, I mean, just expending that kind of money on a reliever, then giving that reliever to Tony Larusa, never that doesn't feel like the best strategy to me. Um, you're basically just asking Larusa to turn his arm into pulp. I, if I'm Rick Hahn and I already have to deal with the fact that I have a manager I don't want, I am probably telling Larusa, you be please be very careful with Liam <laughs> Hendricks. You know, you're not using him back to back. 
you're not using him two innings at a time, whatever it is, which, I mean, kind of probably limits his value. But again, with La Russa, you probably do have to throw some uh, some breaks on things because left to his own devices, especially at the age of 76, I, I really don't imagine he's... And the thing, we, we don't know what Tony La Russa's managerial style is like at this point. He hasn't managed since, what, 2010, somewhere around there? How, how long has it been since Tony La, Russa, Tony La Russa was a major league manager? Like a decade now at this point? At least. Um, we don't know what his managerial style is going to look like when it comes to uh, pitcher when it comes to pitcher decisions, bullpen management, any of that stuff. My assumption is it's going to be miserable. So that that's the only concern I have with Hendricks is do you really want to put Liam Hendricks in the hands of Tony Larissa? But at the same time, I, I guess you'd rather put Liam Hendricks in his hands than a worse reliever. You know, is it really going to be any better if you do that with, you know, uh, who, who's even left at this point? I, I guess if they were to work out a trade for Brad Hand, Brad Hand, yeah, or someone. Well, Brad Hand's um, a free agent. Oh, that's right, because he got he, we went through. I still don't understand why no one picked up Brad Hand for a year and ten million, when Liam Hendricks is going for eighteen million. That 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 to me remains the weirdest move of this offseason. The that Cleveland was more or less like anyone who wants can have a free Brad Hand, and twenty nine other teams went, eh, no thanks. That's very odd to me. I mean, this, we're in a we're in yeah, he's not that old. I guess Archie Bradley would be the other best free agent reliever available right now. Um, and, and both of those guys are clearly a tier down from Hendricks anyway. I mean, Hendricks is probably one of the ten best relievers in baseball right now. So it's obviously a good move for Chicago just on the surface, on paper, whatever you want to call it. It probably makes them the slight favorite over Minnesota right now, but that division is neck and neck between those two. And it kind of it, – it's, it's what we were talking about, I think, last week too. I forget exactly why – but that idea of every win at a certain level being worth way more than it usually is because of, you know, the fact that these wins, that any extra wins Chicago can pick up this offseason are the difference between winning the division and being a wild card team. And Hendricks is definitely a move toward winning the division. So this has been a really weird offseason. Not weird, but I guess not all that unexpected, but just the fact that there's still so many major free agents unsigned and it is January 12th. We are roughly one month away from pitchers and catchers, assuming pitchers and catchers happens normally this year, which uh, given the way things are going with the NBA and in the country at large, I kind of doubt that's going to be the case. But regardless, uh, good. I mean, good for Chicago, good for Liam Hendricks. Uh, definitely now the onus is on Minnesota to do something to to counter. Like like we said last week when we were talking about the Twins, I, I, I think obviously it starts with, signing Nelson, with re-signing Nelson Cruz, but... I don't know. I'll, I'll be interested to see, like, once once the offseason wraps up, kind of who the consensus favorite is for the AL Central. I think it's going to be really close between those two teams. I am operating on the assumption that it's the Twins until the White Sox prove it. Like, it's one of those where I, I, I want to see it. And I want to see how this all looks with LaRusse in this group. I, I'm not penciling them in as a favorite. I think you have to include Le- everything. LaRusse really is a very big potential negative X factor. Yes. Um... Yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting to see what comes of that. Do you think if you just, like, they had hired, I don't know, it was a good alternative. Like, the White Sox hired Ron Washington as their new manager instead. Do you like, I would have loved Wash. Well, what I'm saying is, like, do, would you view the White Sox offseason through a different lens? Would you be far more stoked? Would you be? Would we be looking at this team like, oh, yeah, nailed it. Perfect offseason. They're going to be, they should be the favorite. 
Yeah, I, I would feel better about the White Sox if they hired a manager who wasn't an old drunk. Like, mm. For for sure, like that's kind of the thing. Like for as for as much good as the White Sox have done this offseason, for as good as that roster is, they're putting it in the hands of someone who it should not be in the hands of. Just flat out point blank, like Tony Larusa should not be a manager in today's game. He's only there because Jerry Reinsdorf is his best buddy. Like. Yeah, I, I would feel a lot better about the White Sox if Tony Larusa were nowhere near that roster. And I really, I really like this is one of the things. Like, oh, it can't be that bad. No, I really don't think anything positive is going to come out of this. I think he's going to be an absolute flat-out disaster. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, Rob Manfred planning for a 162-game season. Uh, John, do you uh, do you see spring training start? Because we already know the minors have been pushed back. Um, are you a believer? that uh, they're going to agree to a 162-game season. Because ultimately, it seems like the players want that more than the owners, right? Which is kind of strange because he's working well, yeah, for the owners. And I'm just surprised well, yeah, he's coming out with that. I was surprised by that, too, because when, when Manfred said that, my mindset was I thought the owners wanted a shorter season. Right, because, that's what I, yes. Because they want fans in the stands and they want uh, another prorated salary season. I don't think they're going to get to 162 games regardless of who wants it. Uh, I just think that with the way uh, with the way this with the way COVID is currently just tearing through the country, it's it's just not going to happen. I don't see any way it happens. Like we we're already seeing the NBA is just getting torn apart by it, and the NBA is obviously as much smaller much smaller rosters, which both help and hurt because obviously the the, the spread is theoretically smaller. But also, you know, smaller rosters means that, you know, two guys go down and all of a sudden you're in real fucking trouble. So Can I give I, you my can I give you my conspiracy theory about the price sports situation in twenty twenty one? Yes. I there's this there's this part of me when I'm seeing the different stuff and I'm hearing that they're not gonna jump the line and that they went publicly about not jumping the line a few weeks back with the COVID vaccines. That with it getting out of control, they're going to be like, the owners are going to come out and be like, I, 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 we, we just got to do it. Where fans are like, just do it. Like, turn the the impetus to the fans to be like, okay, y'all can jump the line. We need our sports. And, like, the Sixers playing with eight players is really depressing and awful. Just jump the line. We, we'll move on. We'll jump the line. Like, to wait for the public sentiment to change of just being like, yeah, no, you you can go do it. We're cool with it now. Because... I, I think we're nearing the point where it's like, yeah, they're just all going to be like, we were going to do it anyway, but we want to make sure that we didn't uh, put together a, a strong revolt by uh, by vaccinating everybody too quickly. I, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't think – I just don't think regardless of how this works, vaccines or not, I, I just don't think there's enough time at this point to get a 162-game season off the ground because the vaccine is not going to be, even if they get, even if MLB manages to jump to the front of the line, given how slow this rollout has been and how badly it's been handled, I don't see how everyone gets, I don't see how everything gets set in time for a regular spring training. And I do think that regardless of Manfred saying, I want a full season, you're going to have owners come out and say, maybe not all of them, but probably a sizable contingent and a loud contingent say, no, we want to wait till fans can go to games because otherwise we're going to take another bath on revenues, which not true. But regardless, that's going to be their that's going to be the line that they want to hold is we want fans to come back to games. We do not want to play games until that's possible, especially because there are going to be some teams that can play games with fans. 
um, in states that have just given up entirely. But, you know, how is it going to, like, like, if the season starts and, you know, fans in Tampa can go to games and fans in New York City can't, how long is it going to be before Rob Manfred has Randy Levine in his ear screaming about how this is completely unfair, he's losing money, but the Rays aren't, or whatever it is? That's why I just think the 162-game season just probably isn't going to happen anyway because there's just too many logistical complexities and the fact that the owners are just going to be flat out against it. So, I mean, I, and to be fair, I think Manfred is saying I, we're going to have a 162-game season, not because he necessarily believes that that's the case, but because he needs to present a, a veneer of normalcy to make it seem like everything is going normally. You know, baseball, he needs to position the sport as going back to normal. Uh, that, I mean, that's a huge part of everything right now. Things are going back to normal. We're going to have a full season. We're going to, you know, we're going to play with fans in the stands, all that fun stuff. You know, th- that has to be the message because otherwise people are just going to, I don't think people necessarily tune out, but you, you have to sell an, an idea of normalcy, I think. And that's what Manfred is trying to do because he's, you know, he's not just responsible to the owners. He also has to, you know, promote and protect the image of Major League Baseball. And I think in that regard, that means full season, regular season, et cetera. Yeah, we'll see what happens here. The Nationals break the internet. They sign Kyle Schwarber. Um, I really wanted Kyle Schwarber if the DH was going to be a thing in the NL this year. But, um, yeah, the Nationals get another one. Gearing up for the the Chicago Cubs send-off before they trade for Chris Bryant in a couple weeks. (laughs) I mean... Kyle Schwarber could still be a DH, assuming that, you know, the NL brings back the DH at some point or keeps the DH. Well, it's rather. a one-year deal, right? Like, so I, I don't think... Uh, yeah, so yeah. If, they, if they if they bring back the DH for 2021, it makes all the sense in the world for him to be a DH as opposed to a terrible left fielder. Um, it's a move that Washington had to make. They need another bat. They need an outfielder. Kyle Schwarber can do both of those things. It's a reasonable contract at just $10 million. Um, it, it makes sense for both sides. Uh, if you're a Nationals fan, maybe you want to see something a little more impactful than Kyle Schwarber and Josh Bell as your two major offseason additions. I don't know that the Nats are going to end up doing more than that, though. I mean, I think from this point forward, it's probably filling out the roster with uh, on similar one-year deals for, for kind of more established guys. I mean, I don't think they were ever going to be involved in the chase for guys like George Springer and JT Realmuno, even though you could argue that they really should have been. But... I mean, if you're gonna, I guess if you're gonna play in the in the kind of middle section of free agency, you could do a lot worse than Schwarber. The trick is going to be obviously just um, figuring out whether or not he's capable enough defensively to to hold that role down. And also, I mean, I'm curious now. Like, this is the Nationals did have an internal option in left field in Andrew Stevenson who has gotten very little playing time over the last two years, but has hit very well the last two seasons when he has played. Uh, so I'm kind of curious what they're going to do with him, because both he and Schwarber are left-handed hitters, so you can't platoon them. Um, I don't know. I would have been interested to see what they could have gotten out of Stevenson. But Schwarber is definitely a, a good addition to have, so or a good addition to make, rather. So it, it makes sense for both sides. He gets a year to try to re-up his value and try to score a, a, a long-term deal. And the Nationals get a hitter because they really needed a hitter. Their their lineup is is not great. Yeah, but hey, at least the Nationals are doing stuff. Shout out to the Nationals. Keep doing stuff. Um, the other thing, the other thing I will mention is Schwarber is a guy who desperately needs a platoon partner, which I don't really know that the Nationals have for him right now. That's why I was saying with Stevenson, like 
you know, in an ideal world, Stevenson is a right-handed hitter uh, who you can throw in there against lefties. But uh, as it stands right now, like that, that's not the case. So if you're the Nationals, who are you? I mean, it's not the biggest concern in the world is who do you platoon with Kyle Schwarber, but they don't really have any good options there unless they want to try Jake Knoll in the outfield, which uh, they should not do that. No, no. Um, the Dodgers re-signed Blake Trinan to, to a two-year deal. Do you like this for the Dodgers? Sure. He was good for them last year. Um, he should be good for them again, assuming he's uh, assuming he's healthy. I mean, the, the thing with Trinan and this curious is uh, his velocity has been slipping a little bit. Uh, he doesn't throw that same like power sinker that he used to. Uh, his velocity has gone from 98 when he was on the A's just to 97 this year. I mean, that's, which is not like a huge dip or anything. Um, it's just a question of it's just a question of can he stay healthy, and well, that's pretty much it. I, mean, I think for the Dodgers, it makes sense too to just lock in as many like high-tier relief arms as you can, given the way Kenley Jansen has slipped and given that you can really never have too many good relievers. Um, so I think it, it makes sense for them. It makes perfect sense for them to, to keep him around because, and that's the other thing, like otherwise they'd be getting a reliever, unless they were going to get Liam Hendricks, which I know they were, they were kind of connected to him, but then and I don't think they ended up, um, I don't think they, obviously they ended up getting him, and I don't know how serious that was, but, they, you know, let's say we're going to sign Liam Hendricks. Like all the other relievers, a la Trinan, were pretty much in his same class. Like Bradley, Hands, um, Trevor May before he signed with the Mets. So I mean, really, if you're not going to sign Trinan, who else are you going to sign? Who's really any appreciably better? And it would have been Hendricks. And so if they're not going to get Hendricks, Trinan is pretty much the next best thing. Yeah. Well, the Dodgers. Good to see a. Good to see some good things going their way. Um. Uh, I like it. Who doesn't want to see it? Um, now, we've been saving the biggest Major League Baseball story of the last week. Um, I didn't want to include the Lindor stuff in the news and notes part of this podcast because it's part of the Indians who we'll be talking about now. Um, the Francisco Lindor trade. I don't even know if it's worth asking, did the Cleveland Indians get enough for Francisco Lindor from the New York Mets? Depends what you mean by enough. Did they get, I mean, what they got was two relatively cheap, in the case of Andres Jimenez, like just, you know, first three years of his contract, like major league minimum cheap, uh, middle infielders, which they needed. And they got a pair of prospects who cost them nothing right now and will continue to cost them nothing for a good long while. So in that sense, the Indians got exactly what they wanted. Four controllable guys will be around for a bit and who in the pro in the case of Jimenez and Ahmed Rosario will be fine did they get as much as you would have expected for the combination of Francisco Lindor and Carlos Grasco absolutely not is it a light return yeah yeah it is does it make the in- does it make Cleveland better for 2021 no it clearly makes them worse does it make them better for the future not as much as re-signing Francisco Lindor and keeping Carlos Carrasco would have been so no, I, I, I wouldn't say they got enough, if only because what they got is just, again, two cheap middle infielders and a couple of prospects who may help down the road. It's selling low, which is crazy to think about. It's selling low in one of the five best shortstops in baseball and Carlos Carrasco on top of it. The Carlos Carrasco part is, is the thing that really just kind of makes this feel all the much worse for Cleveland. It's one thing to give up Lindor for a light package. It's another thing to throw Carrasco in there just to get rid of more money while you can. 
because that's that's what really makes it obvious. This is just about like the U Darvish trade is really just about getting rid of money. And in exchange, again, all they're getting is Ahmed Rosario and Andre Semenes. That's it. That's not a lot. That's two pretty pretty mediocre middle infielders right now. Like, Let's also mention <clears throat> they didn't have to do this. And this is something that I've seen national baseball writers that I like and respect overlook is that, well, let, let's start here. Is like you have to have this preface that they didn't have to do this and the Cleveland Indians were one game away from winning the AL Central last year. Like there is no incentive to do this other than we want to save money. Like that is the only incentive and that is something that I think just has to be hammered home. It's just like there is no reason for the Cleveland Indians to trade their best player in his prime. There's just none. No, and the only the only the only uh what's it called? The only God damn, how did I just lose words? The only excuse you can make is that Cleveland knew they would not be able to re-sign Lindor. But again, like you said, that is a decision of the team's own making. That is ownership deciding in advance whatever Lindor costs, which is almost certainly going to be an extension worth $250 million or more, is not something that is not something that we want to spend. There's not an amount of money we want to spend. And that's a decision on the part of Paul Dolan because he can afford that. The Indians can afford, or the Cleveland can afford that. I know that the, you know Cleveland is a small market. They never run big payrolls. Blah 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 blah. Enough of that. They can afford what they want to afford. Every team in baseball can afford what it wants to afford. It is all a choice. All of this is a choice. And I feel like I've said that a million times, both here and elsewhere. But payroll is a choice. There is nothing stopping Cleveland from spending more money. There is only the admission on the team's part that they don't want to spend more money. That keeping this player. Uh, is not cost-effective enough for them. Therefore, they will be getting rid of this player in exchange for other players who are more cost-effective. And that if that means that the 2021 Indians win 79 games and finish in third place, well, that's the that's the that's the unfortunate reality, you know. And that's kind of I know we we've talked about this too. Is like that is the the central problem with baseball right now is that what happens on the field is not as important as what happens uh, is what ha- as what happens financially. It is more important to the majority of team owners and front offices and teams generally how much they are spending on the team than whether or not the team is actually any good. Because, again, there isn't any justification you can make for trading Francisco Lindor, or better said, you can't make any argument that trading Francisco Lindor makes Cleveland better in 2021. There's no argument, none whatsoever, zero, none. It makes them worse. It makes them worse in 2021. It makes them worse in 2022, and so on and so on and so on, unless one or both of those prospects, and I guess also Andres Jimenez, who is young enough to still be considered a prospect, even though he lost prospect status, turns out to be the next Francisco Lindor, who will then be traded in six years' time. Like, it's, That's the other part. It's just an endless cycle of just, only being competitive for as long as your good player is affordable. And again, affordable in quotes, for as long as you care to keep paying him. So, yeah, no, it's a choice. It is entirely a choice. And Cleveland fans should be very upset about that because this is a team that four years ago was one win away from a World Series and that was still very much a contender in a weak division, even with the Twins and White Sox being there too. 
all Cleveland had to do this offseason was add, and they would have been right up there with 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 uh, with Chicago and 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 Minnesota. A rotation that has the AL Cy Young winner and Shane Bieber in it, and that has Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco and Jose Ramirez. Just add stuff, and not, you don't even have to add that much. They don't. They didn't have to go out and get JT Realmuto and re-sign Trevor and bring back Trevor Bauer and add George Springer. Just get some competent outfielders. Any outfielders, honestly. Cleveland Just re-sign outfield. Michael Brantley. Seriously, re-sign Michael Brantley. Sign Kyle Schwarber. Uh, they're mid-tier starters you could sign if you really need them for some reason. Keep Brad Hand for only $10 million. Go nuts. <laughs> Take Nick Markakis. Okay, don't let's, let's not go that far. Um, that's the thing. Like Cleveland intentionally made itself worse for 2021 in order to make itself cheaper going forward. That's the only. That's it. That's the only reason they did why they did. And that shouldn't be okay. That shouldn't. Not that it shouldn't be allowed, but it's just really one of those things where it's like, it's just it just shouldn't be okay. It shouldn't just be accepted that that's how teams operate now. I mean, that's how they have operated, but that just should not be something that we just like, shrug our shoulders and go, well, what are you going to do? At some point, some fan base is going to need to take some level of action with regards to telling teams enough is enough, build a winner, or we're not here anymore. And I don't know how or when that happens, but I, I have to feel like if you're, an, if you're a Cleveland fan, why are you watching that team next year? What have they done to, to keep you around? If anything, all they've done is push you away. They took the best player on the team, the, fran- the face of the franchise, the guy everybody loves, and just got rid of him for nothing, really. Why are you watching next year? What's the point? Why are you giving, me- why are you giving Cleveland your money, your attention, your time? They don't, they don't earn it. They didn't, haven't earned it. They don't deserve it. They've just told you that, that your time is not worth anything to them. That the more important thing is that they don't spend as much as they were previously projected to. In happier news, Shane Bieber is actually awesome. Is he, like, he's in Cleveland, he's away from the spotlight, but, like, is he going to be maybe, like, the best starting pitcher in the AL for the next several years? I don't know. I mean... It's tough because I mean, when when we're talking about the best pitcher in the American League over the next over the next years, like who is the who's the competition there in terms of? And I, I just to keep it just to limit it because obviously we could talk about guys like Cole or potentially Verlander if when he's healthy. But Bieber turns twenty six uh, in May, so if we want to talk about other guys in that same age range, like who who is the competition for him? It's probably Giolito. Maybe it's, it's Giolito probably. I think Tyler Glasnow is part of that conversation. Um, like, I maybe is Jose Brios even still under twenty six? Also, a, a guy question. who's very inconsistent, but has the stuff to be uh, to be up there. Brios is exactly twenty six and turns twenty seven in May, so it's a pretty short list of guys I would imagine who are as young as Bieber is, but as talented and have been as productive as he is. So at least within his age range, and maybe you could even say under 30, you know, yeah, you're probably talking about the best pitcher in the American League and the best pitcher in the American League going forward for a few years. What will be interesting is how, I mean, how, much, how replicable is what he did last year going over to next year? And I feel like, it, like oh, okay, maybe he's not going to put up like a 281 ERA plus again. That's kind of hard <laughs> to say the least. 
but all the peripherals are very, very, I mean, he had a FIP of 207 versus an ERA of 163. He wasn't lucky last year. He earned it. He, he earned all that success. Um, I don't know. I mean, who, who would you say would be kind of in his class in terms of other pitchers who are, you know, similar age, similar, like similar age range who are on that same level of performance? I mean, I think you're right used. about Klaus now. I think it's probably him. Um, I don't know. I just, I really look around the league and I'm like, I, I just feel like Shane Bieber is just going to be the best starting pitcher in the AL and it doesn't fucking matter because they're not trying in his prime. Like he's literally just going to be awesome for a team that's literally not trying to make the playoffs anymore. Like no, the, and, for and the it, duration the, of the rest of his twenties, like that is an insane it, timeline mess up on their part. And that's a good, and that's a good point on your part that when you have a pitcher as good as Shane Bieber, you're supposed to build up around him. Because otherwise, like you said, you're just going to waste the next two or three years of his career before you trade him, too. Like, what is the point of Shane Bieber on the Indians for the next three years? That's what I'm trying to wrap my head around. The bigger question, I know we're going to get to it uh, at some point. What's the point of Jose Ramirez on Cleveland at this point? Well, let's just get to that now, because that was my follow-up to this, is that, like, what is is the point? They're not trading Shane Bieber. He's cheap and awesome for them for a while, and they can't go that full. Um, Jose Ramirez, though, like, what, what is the point? None, as far as I can tell. What? Well, why are you? Why? Like that's the thing. If you're Cleveland, a, a Jose or sorry, a Francisco Lindor Carlos Carrasco trade is a teardown. There's really no other way to look at it. You made your team worse. Not just worse, but like worse to a point where you went from uh, to be uh, you went from playoff contender just out of it completely. That Indians team or that, this Cleveland team is probably going to be below 500, maybe 500 at best. So if you're not going to make the playoffs, well, I guess that's the thing. In the expanded format, there's still a chance. But realistically, who cares? If you're just going to, like, I always come back to, to the, the Mike Ehrman trout belief. There are no half measures. You go all in or you don't do it at all. And if you're going to trade Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco, you might as well go all in and finish the damn job. Here's the thing. Jose Ramirez is... Uh, will turn will turn 29 next in September. So this will be his age 28. I feel season. like he's been 35 for 10 years now. I cannot believe yeah, I he's know. in his 20s. Like that still blows really my weird. mind. He's under contract for next year with two, I want to say, entirely reasonable team options for 2022 and 2023. But it's Cleveland we're talking about. Who knows how reasonable that is. Regardless, he's under contract for this year. And then two team options totaling $24 million the next two years. So he is extremely affordable and extremely under contract. And so I get that sense of Cleveland's like, why would we give him up when he's affordable and productive and when we still have him for two more years and then he just walks and that's the end of it? Or maybe we trade him sometime in 2022 or whatever. I guess the other side of it is like, if you trade, uh, I don't know. I, talking about this is just kind of sad because like, who knows what Cleveland is doing and why if, if all they care about is is shedding money right that that's kind of the thing like it, it just makes it hard to be like why are you keeping jose ramirez oh because he's cheap and why did you get rid of or but you got rid of jose francisco lindor so your team's not going to be good so why do you keep jose ramirez anyway oh we didn't get much for francisco lindor oh because he's a pending free agent. there's just so many like there's so many complications of like i mean here's the thing francisco or if you put jose ramirez on the trade market he bring a lot back because again he's only under contract or not only under contract, he's only owed $24 million past this year in two very good team options. You know, some very smart contender would probably give up a fair amount for him. 
a la what the Rays got for Blake Snell. Which then makes me feel like if if you're Cleveland, then why don't you do that? If you're gonna if you're gonna start rebuilding, why not turbocharge it and move Ramirez? The well, two maybe most they do, valuable, right? Do we know for certain? Like, what do we do? We expect no, Ramirez we don't, we don't, to be an we, Indian for the rest of the season? I don't. I don't think so. No, we, we we don't know for certain. But at the same time, it's like the two most valuable assets, the two most better sets, the two best players on your roster, and I guess honestly, the two most valuable assets when you consider contract and and age are Shane Bieber and Jose Ramirez. I'm not saying you trade both of them, but if you're going to start, if you're going to accept that 2021 is a step back toward better in the future, I mean, there, I guess therein lies the calculus of, do you think, like, do, does Cleveland's front office think that within the next three years, the last three years of Jose Ramirez under contract, that they will be good enough for him to be worth being there as opposed to trade him for what you can get now and move on from there. And I, I don't know. Like I don't know. I don't know Cleveland's system well enough to know how they feel about. Um, to know how they feel about. Oh, hey, well, we can still. Is you know? Do they think this is a skinny rebuild? Uh, I mean, clearly, I guess because they haven't done anything else. You know, do they still feel like their roster is good enough to compete even without Lindor and Carrasco? Which I think is insane, but you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know, but I, I get the feeling that if you're going to, if you're going to uh, make that move, you might, you might as well keep going, right? You might as well. I'm not saying you trade everything that isn't nailed down to the floor, but a guy like Ramirez would actually bring a ton back. And again, like he's only under contract for the next three years. Are you, are, is Cleveland? confident that within those next three years it will it can win a championship i don't think so or at least looking at the roster from the outside i don't see how that happens yeah i don't i don't either but uh, future brave jose ramirez um i am excited about that in what universe are the braves giving up talent for anything well hold on they're they're getting there it's it's a plan it's a process if you will uh john taylor um have you had a second to look at the indians outfield this is this is what cracks me up. Uh, Mike Petriello <laughs> made this point. How do you trade Lindor and Carrasco and not get an outfielder back when you have oh Cleveland's outfields? Oh That's God. the funniest part of all of this. If they had at least gotten one outfielder back who was of any damn use, then this trade would have looked a little bit better. It still would have been a bad trade, but at least you could have said, well, at least they did we got Michael Conforto. the worst outfield in baseball. Their projected outfield is... I swear to God, Josh Naylor, Bradley Zimmer, and someone named Daniel Johnson. I legit have no idea who Daniel Johnson is. Mm. Not a clue. I have never seen that name before. Ever. And it's not like there are better options sitting on the bench. Oscar Mercado, Jordan Luplau. Fran Mill Reyes. Well, Big Fran Mill is going to be the DH almost certainly because yeah. he's he should not. But be he in might have to. He might have to get some field, some fielding in. And like I know they have. Uh, well, no, Bobby Bradley's more of a first baseman. I think they tried him in the outfield, but there's just not. And that's the thing. You look in their system, in their farm system. There's really no one close. Their best outfielder prospect wise is George Valera. He's 20 years old, and he's he has not gotten above low A ball. That that's not a dude who's going to help anytime soon. The guy they got from the Mets, Isaiah Green, similarly, 
has is he's 19 years old. He, he's going to start the season in low A ball if, if there is a minor league season at all. There's no help coming internally. So what? You have to do something if you're the if you're Cleveland. You have to go get outfielders. This is again going to be the worst outfield in baseball. Okay, I will say this: in Daniel Johnson's defense, he is ranked as, or he did rank last year as one of the Indians' top ten, or as one of Cleveland's top ten prospects. And according to uh, our own, uh, what's it called? To, according to our own Eric Longenhagen, he currently ranks 16th on that list. So he's not terrible. He's seven, but like again, this is a guy who. You're really just gonna. Th- I I don't know. I. It's just it's so bad. It's so bad. Like when you have to throw Jake Bowers out there, who's again a they have, Cleveland has a weird collection of first base DH types who really should never be in the outfield. Um. I don't know. It's. I mean that's the thing. Like and like a guy like Daniel Johnson is he a regular? I mean, reading Eric's blurb on him, it seems like the, 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 the mindset there is, no, no, he is not. He's probably a platoon bat. That's useful, but, like, I, just, I, I don't understand how this is an area that Cleveland just, like, refuses to do anything about. It, it's, it's pathological at this point. Why are they not getting more outfielders? Why are they convinced that this is something that they that where – Josh Naylor and Bradley Zimmer and Daniel Johnson is an okay trio to run out there every day. It's it's frankly not. Those are three pretty mediocre hitters. Really doesn't seem like that's what you should be relying on. But clearly, clearly the clearly Cleveland just does not care. It doesn't care. And that's that's the thing. I think with all of this and talking about Cleveland, they don't care. They just clearly do not care about their fans, about 2021, about winning. If winning happens, great. If it doesn't happen, eh, so be it. All that matters is just not spending that much money. Yeah. That's all that matters to them. That's the depressing part. Well, we'll have to end it there, John Taylor. Um, that's how we have to end it with the uh, the Cleveland Indians. Hopefully, Cleveland Spiders. What are you, what are you pulling for? What what name do you want them to be renamed? I don't. I don't really think I've seen a single name that I like all that much. I, I'm. I'm. Maybe I'm in the minority here. I'm just. I'm not crazy about the the Spiders name. Oh, this is kind of silly. Well, you Cleveland can't always Spiders. be right, John. <laughs> you you can't always be right. I frequently am not right. Mm. Um, but I just Cleveland Spiders just feels weird to me. I don't know. Well. It's unfortunate, but um, sometimes you, you're wrong, John, and it's okay. Uh, John, what can we check out from you this week on the interwebs? Uh, I got nothing going, just still doing some of the editing for fan graphs. Uh, but no, I got, I got nothing coming out on my end. All right. Well, go follow him at J.A. Taylor. Follow myself at Chase underscore Thomas. Uh, John, thank you, as always, for the time. Good, sir. Uh, are we doing Tigers next week? Oh boy, is there, I, is there even enough to talk about with the Detroit Tigers? Yeah, yeah. Robbie Grossman in the house. Casey Mize in the house. People are. Why are you gonna make? Why are you gonna make me talk chopping about at this? the bit for some Tigers talk? I'm just, I'm just looking at their roster now because I'm genuinely curious. Like I don't, I don't really know the Tigers particularly well. It's not a team I really pay much attention to. Holy moly, this is depressing. Oh, the Ooh, AL Central. Boy. It's all depressing. Jeez. Um, there you go. Well, John, Ish. thank you. Talk to you soon.
Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. The Aaron's AA team makes getting the name brand furniture, electronics, and appliances you need easy and affordable. We're talking top brands like HP, Samsung, GE, Beautyrest, and so many more. Take them home today, then make low monthly payments until they're yours for good. Aaron's great rent-to-own deals even come with easy approvals and free delivery. That's Aaron's, the rent-to-own power of the AA team. All right. Hey, everyone. I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help get you your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, oh yeah, the best part is you can get all this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or having an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited. So get your application in today. Uh, to apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more. But that's bwhustle.com slash join. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast, and I am now joined by Impact Wrestling's TJP or Manic, depending on what do you prefer to go by today. What what would you prefer, uh, TJ? Well, right now the monster's not coming out, so it's uh, <laughs> definitely TJ this morning. Well, I guess it depends on how how many cups of this coffee I have. It might switch. But what is your average coffee intake per day, TJ? Uh, so if it's coffee. I might have a couple cups in the morning, mm. but usually by the uh, afternoon, I'll switch to something like an energy drink or like a pre-workout or something. And my caffeine intake is way above the recommended cap. So Same. I, <laughs> it's probably why Manic came back now in recent years, to be <laughs> honest. Too much caffeine. Well, see, now I'm figuring out why your matches move so quickly now is that uh, the caffeine intake has is, is up. You have a caffeine spike, and then uh, that, there you go. Like I was telling some buddies, because I was doing the year in awards, and I kind of want to start here, is you've become, in ring, one of my favorite workers to watch. And I was watching some old stuff of you from like eight years ago, and it's just <laughs> – Cody had this thing – a few months back where he was like the wrestler's prime doesn't really start till he reached 35 and you're 36 now, correct? Yeah. I just turned a couple months ago. Yeah. Well, happy late birthday, sir. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
I Thank you I think much. that's true. Like I think that's true is like it, you can see that you've kind of mastered professional wrestling at this point. Where now I'm like, "Oh, the difference is there. Do you go back and watch your stuff from uh, a decade ago and look at where you are now and you're like, everything is fluid." And when I describe your style to other people, I'm like, "Well, his in-ring style is just so crisp. Like you are the most crisp, fast worker I I enjoy watching now." And that's uh, kind of where wrestling is gone, but um, the transitions from high high flying stuff to um, submission moves, like it's just it all looks so clean and it all happens so fast that like when I'm taking notes watching these shows, I'm like I just don't understand how he's able to do that in that amount of time and make it look as easy as he does. Like you make professional wrestling look easy. <laughs> I, I had I had a coach once, a boxing coach, who told me he, he would always say make it look easy, and that was like his way of. It was sort of like his, like credo, I guess. I mean, it was when you would do myths and things. It was just uh, like, because he felt like if people felt more inclined to do things that way, then they would actually fight better. Mm. Like they, they would be like the, the, the aggressive and like more gamey part of it would come out if you just approached it like a game uh, from the onset. So he would always say, make it look easy, make it look easy. And so stuff like steps and footwork and things like that always uh i always remember just hearing him say that a lot with like drilling because it just i don't know and i've always been drawn to people like i've always been drawn more to muhammad ali than to you know foreman or tyson for example you know like i've just always been drawn to the guys that are uh that are smooth and, and operate in that way. And, and, uh, you know, some, some guys, they like Steve Austin. They, they like the ass kicker. Mm-hmm. You know? And for me, I, I've always, I've always liked the kind of the opposite a little bit. You know, I liked, I liked the Bretts and I liked guys, you know, the tiger masks and, yeah. you know, people like that. And I think Eddie is my, my, that's why he always <laughs> was like the ultimate guy for me because he's sort of like the, the meeting point between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was always, he didn't have a lot of fire when he was younger. I think that's what drew me to him early in his career because he was always kind of shy and quiet, you know. People, if you've been watching wrestling long enough, people forget like how quiet and smooth Eddie was. And he wasn't really the most charismatic guy in the beginning. Then later he became super fiery and, and was more of a fighter. So he, he kind of became the model for me at a certain point. Like that's how you put the two together. But uh, I do think that I've gotten a, a little better in my age, I guess. Um, do you go back and watch like your old with, stuff? You know, I try not to watch <laughs> any of my stuff, really. But really, occasionally, I'll. Uh, yeah, I don't like. Uh, Johnny Depp once said about his movies: once I once I do them, they're out there. That 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 belongs to other people. That's mm-hmm. other people's business now, and it's just on to the next one. Um, I, I'll watch sometimes. Uh, I used to review some of my stuff with. Um, with Shawn Michaels uh, at the PC, like mm. he would, he was like kind enough to sit with me one-on-one him and Terry Taylor. And, and we would occasionally watch my stuff from that week, like game study, like the NFL yeah. players would do or something like that, you know? Um, but I generally like on my own time, I, I try not to watch. I'm not a big fan of myself. I don't really, <laughs> I don't really like, like I like watching other guys. So I don't really like watching myself, but I, I do notice differences in what I do. And I think mostly it's like the decision-making is, um, 
it, it became it became a lot more clear to me. Like I, I don't know. So when that you say decision I making, improved, like in moves and matches, and like calling out and understanding where to go, things yeah, like that. tempo changes, things mm. like that, and like different different reads you're making. Like I was a kind of a classically trained guy. Like I, I try to do more of it in the ring than I do in the locker room, so to speak. So uh, in approaching it that way, it's uh, it's a life experience game, and I think that's that's really what the relevance to what Cody said is, and I used to hear that all the time. You don't hit your prime until your mid thirties. So uh, I didn't really know what that meant. And now I kind of see that, you know, this game is much more geared towards your mental aptitude than it is your physical aptitude. Mm. And your meeting, the meeting point of that for most people is in your thirties. You know, you're still at, you know, peak condition or close to it, like your body's ability to do things mm. uh, hasn't faded too much, but like your mental aptitude is much sharper than, than most people when they're in their mid twenties, as opposed to, you know, your mid thirties. And obviously you get smarter as you get older, but your body starts to go the other direction. So this is usually the five year window where they're kind of both near their peak and and I, I think that's kind of what makes it easy for me now. Um, Cause you know, it, it does feel a lot more automatic now. Uh, you can tell. I don't work as hard as I used to do. <laughs> I don't work as hard as I used to do when I was in my twenties. Like I used to train a lot harder and, and, and different things. But now I think I feel like I see the angles and, and the different, you know, things that I need to m- make sure is sharp. So it kind of narrows it down, frees up your mind to, to, to uh, worry about other parts of the game. So I guess, you know, you maximize it better that way. Do you think about when you get older in your forties and what your style, how your style works, like how you'll have to continue to evolve? Do you, do you think about that a lot as you're, as you're just thinking about the, the second half of your career? Shit, man. I thought about that when I was 15 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I always knew that, you know, when I started, when I was younger, it was not lost on me that a lot of guys do this until they're, you know, 50. Mm. And in order to do that, they have to be able to physically be able to do that. And, and, you know, a lot of the things that scares guys from starting is seeing how guys at that age struggle and their quality of life. And so, you know, for me, that's never been lost on me because it's like, all right, I'm not scared enough of that to not do this since I'm starting. But uh, in order to get there, like, I think people sometimes they forget, like when I started at 13, yes, it's an advantage, but in, in that sort of way, it's almost like a disadvantage. Cause to me, now I'm looking at age 50, if yeah. I'm trying to do this and make money and make a career to age 50, I have twice as long to go now. Like how yeah. do I take care of myself for that long? Like if you start at 25 and then you really kind of get rolling at age 30, that's, way 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 shorter so for me i was always scared of that like how how am i possibly going to do it for that long and uh so that's why i really kind of took up technical wrestling from the beginning is just because i was like you know this is there's more like, staying not power only will i and yes it's like watching a basketball player who learns how to post up on 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 a guy like mm. now they don't have to always drive through and like dunk on people. They don't always have to play this game where they have to be stronger or faster. They're just, their footwork is going to do it for them. They're, they're, they're learning to use the basket to their advantage, you know? Um, 
So you see a lot of guys age more gracefully when they take up that sort of thing in basketball. So to me, that's what technical wrestling was. Is like, this is how I can use the more delicate parts of the game to tell my stories. And, you know, it, the other good thing is like, then people you work with, you get in the ring with, they, they enjoy their time with you more because you're not, you're not killing them. <laughs> so it's like, uh, that helps me a lot because then, uh, you know, people are a lot more agreeable and, and easy to, uh, to get in and out of the ring with in that way. What is the hardest thing about transitioning from being a singles worker to a tag team worker? Cause usually people go from tag team to singles, but you went back to tag teams for a little bit with Bob, um, these past couple of years in impact. Like what, uh, did you have to kind of like retrain your wrestling brain a little bit to work as a team again? So in, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I think the, the one thing that really was a big thing for me, because I've always been sort of, I guess, so like, fan, even, like fans even know this term, like the, the idea of like a ring general, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always been somebody that kind of drove the boat like whenever I'm working. And I don't know why that is. Like it's not something I ever really asked to do. Obviously, from the beginning, I've always I knew I was gonna be a lifer in wrestling, so I wanted to learn how to be that good at it from an IQ standpoint. But um, from an early age, people would always kind of turn over the the keys to me. So I I've, I don't know why, like something about me, like people expect me to kind of lead the dance. But um, but that's always been that way. And then as I got older, I got really good at it. Um, and now that's usually the role I'm in. And so for me, that was the biggest thing is because when you're in a singles match you you have your hands on the wheel so when you're adjusting the tempo and you're calling plays and all that sort of thing i'm using these sports analogies just to help you know people kind of quickly understand like what it's like to be in that shoes like without necessarily being a wrestler but it's kind of like running the two-minute offense as tom brady right yeah um I, i have my hands on the ball i'm reading the defense i can tell everybody what i'm feeling where we should go but i'm also executing it Whereas in a tag team match, a lot of, I'm spending half that match trying to make those same calls, but I don't have my hands on the ball. So it's kind of like it's kind of like running the two minute offense as a running back at that point, or like a wide receiver. So you can you kind of can make the same reads, but it's hard to make sure everybody's going to be on the same page. So it's a little bit more challenging. Yeah, I. It, it does seem like everything I read uh, that tag team wrestling is more challenging as a whole for a lot of guys than uh, singles work. Um, for you, do you think it's been difficult to juggle multiple gimmicks? Uh, how does that work when you're thinking about like, how do I, okay, this character is this, this character is this. Let me make sure I have a firm understanding and I'm able to uh, <laughs> bounce between the two. Cause I always wondered that with you. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of fun with it. I, I don't, like I was saying before with um, like tape study, I'm not a big fan of myself, like just as is like, if I was a wrestling fan, I, I don't know that I would be my favorite wrestler or anything, which is weird. Cause I, as myself, I obviously I'm trying to pick and, and express stuff that I'm into my style, the colors, you know, the things I'll choose to say in promos and stuff like that. But I don't particularly find myself that interesting so I have a lot of fun with characters because then I can sort of branch out into other stuff artistically and then, um, you know, just, just explore other things that do entertain me, you know, and that, that's, 
there's probably kind of almost a dozen different characters that played and uh, they're all different in some sort of way. Uh, Sadistico, for example, from Lucha Libre USA, yeah. that project from MTV a while back. Like I was, uh, it was almost like Darby Allen. Basically I was, I was like, I played this like psycho skater luchador from Seattle. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is kind of cool. I grew up in an era in like the late eighties and nineties with like grunge rock and skating was <laughs> like getting pretty big and mainstream. And I was like, I can, I can play this. And that, and it is kind of cool to, to play that sort of character. El Bombero is a stripper fireman for <laughs> Lucha the Boom. And I'm like, yeah, this is cool. I grew up, I loved, you know, Hector Garza and Shawn Michaels is like my favorite wrestler. So I'm like able to sort of, be the life of the party, so to speak, and, and stuff that isn't necessarily me. It's just stuff that entertains me. And then, you know, everything's different. Puma, Manic, Suicide, all of them. So. Awesome. Well, we, we're running a long time, so I want to get through these pretty quickly with you. Are you ready for a rapid fire real quick, TJ? Absolutely, yeah. All right. Um, fire away. I had in my notes and watching, I went back and watched your match with Chris Bay on December 15th. Um I think you and Chris Bay have the best in-ring chemistry and impact wrestling. Do you agree? I, I I definitely think it's up there. He's he's one of the few I just not even just in impact, but outside of impact too. Like overall, he's one of the best I've ever been in the ring with. I like it. I like it. He's he's going to be a thing. Chris Bay is going to be a top guy down the road. Um, TJP or Manic is the Impact World Champion in four years or less. True or false? Ooh. Uh, you, wait, I'm sorry. Say that. So T, TJP slash Manic Mill Me yes. is the, I see that, I see that as X Division champion in four years or less. No, 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 no. Not X Division. World champion. Impact world oh. champion. Oh, oh sorry. World champion. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry, sorry. I misheard you. I was still thinking about how good Chris Bay is. <laughs> um, he follows me on Twitter, so he's going to like that. He's going to like that uh, you're a big fan. There you go. Uh, I am. All right. He knows it too. Um, so yeah, rapid fire to answer that. I'm going to say yes, only because if I can't do it within that, then I'm not, I'll never do it. So I'm going <laughs> to set the bar and say, yes, yes. In four years or less, I better do it or else I need to find something else to do. All right. Well, I'll do my best to prop you up. I'll, I'll do my best. I'll, I'll work the, work the, cards. <laughs> I'll work the dirt sheets. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Something fans, wrestling fans don't know or don't see when it comes to in-ring psychology that you think is, it will be fun to note. Oh God. Um, uh, wrestling fans don't know that we can see their emotions before they show them their emotion before they show us their emotions. Okay. Uh, the good one, the good ones, the, like the guys in my position that are the best at what we do, we can see it before they show it. It's, it's like x-ray vision in a poker game. Interesting. I like it. Um, your favorite match that you had in the last year was what? Ooh, Emergence, maybe. Triple okay. threat. I like that. That's a good one. That's a good pick. Um, your favorite wrestler to watch, because you don't watch yourself. Who do you enjoy watching the most right now? Uh, right now, The Great Muda. I'm okay. back and watching some old stuff from The Great Muda. Overall, it would be Eddie. Okay. Um, and last thing, the weirdest thing you found yourself doing with all the free time you've had in the last year. What is it, TJ? (laughs) I wish I had free time. I'm almost busier now with the different content I got to come up with because, uh, 
shifting schedules, but the, I would say probably um, I've become uh, pretty fond of uh, stick ha- hockey, stick handling in my living room. Okay. I, I always played ice hockey when I was younger, and I haven't been able to play a lot. And whenever I have some downtime, I, I pull out my my practice ball and uh, dangle a little bit. I guess is a hockey term. Um, so yeah, I, I I randomly play hockey by myself in my living room. Okay, I like it. The more you know, the more you know. Well, TJ, yeah. this has been uh, this has been great. I've taken way too much of your time today, but I appreciate it. Um, we can check out all your work on Tuesday nights on on Access TV on Impact Wrestling. Things are going really great there. I'm really excited for you guys. Um, tune in. It is Tuesday as we're recording, so uh, we'll be on tonight. Are you on tonight's show? Uh, I I'm I'm not sure what the whole lineup is. Got a lot of this. A lot of having Kenny Omega on the show means means uh, <laughs> stuff. Uh, stuff gets moved around for for the big guy. So, uh, <laughs> but I I think I think I, I have I I will be on in some form or another. The X Division title is uh, is becoming a bigger and bigger part of Hard to Kill. So, which is coming up on on Saturday. So everybody you know who's listening, you know if uh, if you can catch it. Uh, you know, Fight TV, Impact Plus, all that, all the platforms that you would usually catch it on. Absolutely. Go do that. I'll be watching. TJ, keep up the great work, sir, and thank you for the time. Thank you very much for having me. All right, guys. We are good. I hope it did not take too much of your time, TJ. No, not at all. It was my pleasure. Sorry, some some of those questions are fun to answer, so I'll get I'll get going on it and then lose my No, that's good. Mind. That means I, I'm doing a good job, I guess. <laughs> No, no, is is one of the easiest interviews ever. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I hope twenty twenty one is a great year for you, sir, and stay safe out there and stay healthy. And uh, yeah, man, and uh, keep up the great work. And I'm gonna enjoy watching you from afar. Hey, likewise. Thank you so much. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.